Well, this morning, if you are in this room or watching online, um, I think we would mostly agree on a couple of things. One, that there is or there might be a God. Um, now, in pre-pandemic life, I think there might have been chances where somebody got dragged to church against their will. Um, I'm not sure that's happening anymore. So I think we'd all agree on at least that, that there at least might be a God or there is a God. So if there are, one of the next questions would be, how can I know or understand that God better? And then how can I know that God for real? How can I be acceptable in order to commune or to speak to or to hear from or to spend eternity in heaven with that God after I die? And that's the question we're actually tackling this morning is, how can I be acceptable to God? How can I have a relationship with him, with all of my faults and all of my flaws? How can I be in a relationship with God? Because I think at some level, all of us would admit that we're not perfect, that there's something about us that's just not right, whether it's um, a personality trait or something we don't like about ourselves or something we've done. We're not perfect. And if you ever meet somebody who thinks they're perfect, everybody else knows what their flaw is, right? We don't like meeting people who say they're perfect in every way. We know, hey, they're a little bit arrogant. Maybe they aren't as perfect as they thought, right? So at some level, we try to overcome those things that we think might, those imperfections, to be seen as potentially acceptable to God. But we usually do that through external means, right? I'll just, I'm, I'm having a rough time. I'll just go to church more, or I'll pray more, or I'll read my Bible more. I'll serve the homeless. I'll give more stuff away. We do all these things sort of to try to prove that we are good enough. And Mark is going to show us this morning if that is actually the right approach to determine or to show that we are acceptable to God. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 7 this morning. We're going to start in verse 1. Um, it's page 893 in the Pew Bible that's in front of you. Um, if you're following along online or in a Bible app, uh, we use the YouVersion Bible app. It will already be in there for you if you want to turn there. So we're going to kind of read this in sections um, and talk about it as we go through. So we're going to read 1 through 5 first. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. As in, don't sit down on your couch unless you clean it first. That seems like a lot of work to me. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? So this is actually the first time since chapter 3 that the scribes and the Pharisees show up on the scene. In chapter 3, we see the scribes um, accusing Jesus of being in cahoots, for lack of a better word, with Satan. That's why he can cast out demons and command them, because they're in a partnership. The Pharisees have partnered with the Herodians, and what we hear about them is they are plotting to kill him. And so that's the last we heard of them. So when the Pharisees and the scribes show up on the scene to talk with Jesus, there's a pretty good chance that they are up to no good in what they are doing. 
And so when they get there, they see what is happening. And just to kind of walk through this, um, it helps to have some background on this. So the complaint is the disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. Um, This was obviously not a pandemic situation where you like wash your hands 25 times a day. Um, So that's not what they were dealing with. So we need some background info. So the goal of the Pharisees was to remain clean, clean meaning pure, holy, and acceptable to God. Because if someone was unclean, they could not participate in the worshiping community and could not worship God. So if you were, con- if you were considered unclean, you would not be able to come to church this morning. You would actually have to wait outside the city until you were clean, and then you could come back in. That's what we're talking about. So that's what they were trying to do. They had been given the Mosaic law through Moses on the mountain, through the Ten Commandments and some other laws that went with it, to be able to do that, to understand how to be holy. God had given them those. And so this is what Moses received in addition to the Ten Commandments. But notice what they say, what they say in verse 5. They don't say, why don't you follow the Mosaic law? They say, why don't you follow the tradition of the elders, which is something different. There's obviously something else going on here. And so we get a little bit of an explanation that in verses 3 and 4, Mark in his kindness knew that there would be people who weren't Jews who were going to read this. And so he gives us some explanation to help us understand that. And so in those days, the Jews communicated the tradition of the elders orally from generation to generation. We'll see that in a minute. It'll say they handed them down. And about uh, A.D. 200 or whatever whatever it is now, it's not A.D. anymore. I don't remember. Um, About the year 200, they start compiling all of these rules and put them together. So the purpose of these rules was to provide guidelines for all areas of life. So if the Mosaic law didn't address the situation, or it was unclear, or it was too general, then they would make specific laws or traditions or rules to help fill in the gaps that were missing. And so they were essentially building a fence around the law so that no one would ever, under any circumstance, break the law. So they have all of these traditions that go around it to help them do that, to make sure that nobody violates the law so that everyone could remain clean and acceptable to God. So the hand-washing here is an example of the expansion of the laws into traditions. Because what's happening is the Pharisees are washing their hands after they visit the marketplace and they come back and eat um, because there are Gentiles in the marketplace and they may have touched the food or they may have brushed up against them. So if you touch a Gentile, then you are unclean. And so they're washing everything before they eat to wash off the uncleanness of everybody else they might have been around in the market. This sounds more and more like a pandemic situation now that I keep talking about it, right? I need to decontaminate from everything out in the world, right? That's kind of what they were doing. Um, However, the Mosaic Law didn't actually command this. What it commanded was that priests would wash their hands before doing um, uh, meals in the temple before offering sacrifices. So this law in the Old Testament only applied to priests. But the Pharisees said, well, just to be safe, we're going to make everyone do it. So you see how something that's in the law that God gave them to be holy has been morphed into something of the traditions of men and expanded to include everybody. 
So that's what's happening here. They've expanded it, and they're saying, hey, we have all of these traditions and all this long list of rules, and you're not following those, which is the question we get um, next. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? And so if you want to kind of track how we're going, you'll see three questions this morning. Um, this is the one from the scribes and the Pharisees. Then you'll get one later from the disciples. And at the end, you'll get one uh, from the Gentile woman that we'll see at the end. And so these three questions kind of frame what's happening. Jesus is going to respond to each one of them. Um, and his response kind of helps us to see um, whether they're on the right track or not. So let's pick it up um, in verse 6. This is Jesus' response to the question. And he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever speaks evil of his father or mother must be put to death. Um, I think we're all glad we're not doing that anymore. I don't, I'm not sure many of us would be here, right, if we never could say anything against our parents. So kids, you have it good. Just remember that. Okay. But so you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. And so Jesus responds to their question just right off the bat, calling them hypocrites. Doesn't waste any time, just jumps right into it. And he uses, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, to be able to do that. So what he's doing this is he's calling them hypocrites for a couple of reasons. One is that their actions are merely external and don't come from a heart or a desire to obey or to please God. Um, it's actually the opposite, right? They're just trying to stay clean and basically look better than everybody else while they do it. And then second, their teachings are not from God, but reflect the teaching of men. So that's what he's talking about when he calls them hypocrites. And then he gives them an example. And if you're paying attention or you read through this, you can see Jesus is actually giving them a mini-sermon right here, right? He quotes scripture, he gives them a point, he's going to give them an example to explain the point, and he's going to give them a summary at the end in verse 14. So it's like a little mini-sermon right here that Jesus is doing. But what does this example mean? Because we're not in the time of Jesus, we don't really know what Corbin means, we don't know what's happening in this situation. So Mark again helps us out, he tells us that um, when somebody, as a child, says, hey, whatever you would get from me is Corbin, um, that would be something that would be dedicated to God, meaning it could only be, well, it couldn't only be used for that purpose, but it severed the tie of having to use it to help your parents. So in that day, you were actually expected to help your parents um, take care of them for their whole lives and actually provide for them financially at some point. And so what they were doing is they were saying, hey, whatever you would get from me, whatever help you would get, whatever money you would get, I'm declaring it a gift devoted to God, which means I no longer have to give it to you, right? I don't have to give it to my parents anymore. Now, the catch is you actually don't have to give all that stuff to God. 
So they found a loophole to say, well, I don't have to do all this to my parents, and I can just keep it all, and I don't actually have to give it to the temple and for God's service anyway. So they were using the traditions and the extra rules to bypass actually commands in the law, which were to honor your father and mother and to take care of them and to help them out. So he's contrasting those two things, the commands of God, with the traditions of men. So rather than protecting the law, actually their legalistic requirements distorted and at this point even contradicts the law. And when we try to do that, right, we make all of these rules to make sure that we're on the right track, it usually doesn't work out. It really it usually involves um, making laws that God has not made and treating them as equally authoritative to God's word. So I have to do this even though it's not scripture. And so he uses some strong language here. He talks about abandoning God's commandments in favor of their oral traditions. We see this in one of the verses. It actually says, you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. So what he's saying here is, you actually won't let them obey the law that God has given you in order to uphold this tradition. So if he declared his stuff Corbin, and then he went back and tried to help his parents, they would say, you can't do that because you've already dedicated all that to God. So they were actually using this tradition to actually prevent people from following the law. Does that make sense? It's kind of a backward situation, but that's what they were doing. So they were actually reinforcing and enforcing the traditions over the Mosaic law that was given in Scripture. So he uses words like nullify and invalidate and abandon God's law. And the question I had this week and it was, was how, do, how do we do this? Right? I'm sure there are some ways that we abandon, we nullify, we uphold traditions um, over God's word and what it may be. Um, just some examples that may not be too serious, like um, I've been in churches where you could only use the, new, the, the King James Bible, right? That's a tradition. There's nowhere in Scripture that says you can only use the King James Bible. I would argue that if you're going to use the most authentic Bible, you would probably use one that's written in Greek and not in English. So that seems like, anyway, enough about that. Or that you can only sing hymns or that you have to vote a certain way. So we add all of these traditions onto what Scripture says. Now, there may be good cases for those, and you may be able to have principles that align with those, but a lot of those are traditions that run alongside what Scripture actually says. So I think we... On t- from time to time should examine, hey, what are, what are the things that we do that are traditions that aren't actually clear from Scripture? And do we reinforce those traditions over what Scripture is actually asking us to do? I think that's a good thing to evaluate from time to time. The interesting thing is, is that Jesus and the Pharisees were both trying to do the same thing. They were both striving for holiness and to show people how to be holy. They just disagreed on how to do that and what the right way to do that was. So the Pharisees, they were using legalism, right? If you follow all the rules and do all the right things and follow all of these laws and all of these traditions, then you would be acceptable to God. And I think we should admit at this point that a list of rules is actually way simpler to do. If I have a list of rules of things I can and can't do, to be able to follow that is really simple because I can check them off one at a time. Oh, I did all these and I didn't do that. 
So there is actually, I think, an appeal to legalism, to a checklist of things of do's and don'ts. That we, it would make it much easier. But we need to be careful not to trade the word of life, what God is saying to us, what he is asking us to do, commands in Scripture for traditions and rituals and rules and checklists that actually only bring death. So traditional traditions and rituals cannot save us in themselves. They can't make us acceptable to God. So what can? And this is what Jesus will begin to lay out about how we can be holy as he transitions and he talks with the disciples. And so let's pick it up again in verse 13. Or verse 14, and so he brings the crowd together, and this is where you get the summary of what he just taught. He's told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then in verse 17, he goes away into the house from the crowd, and his disciples ask him about the parable. So here's our second question, um, kind of what's going on in this, in what he's teaching. And he said to them, Are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a person. And so he goes away, and the disciples ask again, hey, what does this mean? Which reminds us, the disciples still don't quite get it. They're not quite picking up on what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus is basically trying to tell them, look, what you eat and whether you wash your hands before you eat doesn't matter. That's not what makes you unclean. It's about following the law and the scriptures. Because obedience to the law was actually designed to show that you wanted to do what God desired for you. right? To be in right standing, to reflect obedience and submission to God. The motive behind the law was to make you clean and acceptable to God. Not as a way to determine your status and your value. And so what they wanted was strict adherence to the traditions, but they don't have the same reasoning behind them, right? The traditions weren't designed for that purpose. They were designed as more of a checklist. They are a shadow of the true substance. And we get that from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Meaning those, even the laws and the traditions are shadows of what we're actually reading now, of Jesus who would come and fulfill all of those things. And just a reminder that what you eat has nothing to do with who you are, your thoughts, your attitudes, and your actions. It doesn't affect you morally. It's just passing through, right? What you eat is just passing through. So, we are all, the, the real issue is what is inside. We see that in verse 21. It comes from within what is in people's hearts. So what he's basically saying is we are all unacceptable to God. 
We are all unable to commune with God because of our wickedness. He even gives us a list of things that we might have done that would include that. And notice it includes not just actions, but also thoughts as well. So you don't actually have to physically do something to be in this category. And so the catalog that Jesus gives us, this is just, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Um, You can read the list and understand kind of what those are. But these are, remember, these are not just actions. These are also thoughts and attitudes. The other thing I want you to note is we're all on this list. If you read the list, we're all on it. We've all done at least one of these and probably more than one. Now, you may not have done all of them. I'm hoping that you haven't done all of them, um, actually. So, but we are all at some level on this list. So we are all considered unacceptable because of our thoughts and actions. And we need something to change that. What we really need is to, over, to overcome this, to be acceptable to God, is new hearts. Because if what is in our hearts is what defiles us, then the only way to overcome that is to have a new heart. And if you remember, just at the end of last week, when the disciples said the disciples didn't understand about the loaves, it said the disciples had hard hearts. Which is interesting that in the next story, the next teaching, he says, hey, it's your hearts that defile you, that kind of pointing and leading them along. What you need is a new heart. We need him to clean the inside, not just the outside. So how does Jesus do that, right? Scripture in the New Testament is filled with verses like this. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And so the way that we get new hearts is through Christ who came. He lived a perfect life. He is not on this list. The only man who ever lived who is not on this list, right? He didn't break any of those things, and he lived perfectly And then he went to the cross as a sacrifice for us. He sacrificed for us, giving his life. And then he rose from the dead. And it says, as we trust in him, as we believe in him, as we surrender to him, that his righteousness actually becomes ours, that we become new, we become righteous. We get off this list because of what Christ has done for us and that we trust that he did it for us. He lived the perfect life in our place and gives that to us as we trust in him. So that's a piece of how we get new hearts. We'll get more to that in a second. So what he's saying is we need new hearts. And Jesus, in typical fashion, um, isn't just going to teach them a lesson. He's actually going to put it to use and say, hey, let me show you what this looks like and what it really means. So Jesus had explained kind of why he didn't follow this, these traditions and things that would make people clean and unclean. And now he's going to illustrate it by going into Gentile territory. So not just to the market where he might brush into a Gentile, but actually into where they all lived. And so this is what we're going to pick up in verse 24. And it's going to say this. It says, And he got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. That's our third question. And he said to her, 
Let the children be fed first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And then she went back to her home. She found the child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. And so Jesus demonstrates, hey, not only do you not need to wash your hands or worry about some of those things, you can actually interact and talk with Gentiles in their land. So Jesus is trying to get away. Remember, before the feeding of the 5,000, they were kind of doing the same thing. They were trying to get a break from sending out the disciples to do ministry, and they come back, and they try to get away, and they can't do it. So now they're trying again, I think. And this woman hears that Jesus is there, and she comes, and she falls at his feet. And I think this reveals a couple of things about her. One, um, she has a little bit of reverence for who Jesus is, meaning I think this person is important, so I'm going to go down at his feet, kind of kneel before him. And I also think it shows a little bit of desperation, right? I have this child who is demon-possessed, and nobody can help me, and nobody has answers, but I think he might can, so I'm just going to throw myself at his feet and hope that he has mercy on me and helps me out. So she asks her question, this Gentile woman um, asks her question, can you heal my daughter? And Jesus responds, and the answer might sound a little bit strange to us. Um, it may sound like he's insulting her and calling her a dog, um, but I don't think that's actually what he's doing. There's a couple of things just to note here. Um, dogs in this time were not viewed very well. Think of like dogs roaming the neighborhood um, on their own, kind of loose, kind of scavenging and taking whatever they can find. That's what they would look at when they heard dog. But this is not the normal word for dog. The word here is more like puppy, um, which makes everybody go, oh, this is way better that he called us that instead of that. So it's not that, but more like someone's pet. And so if we understand that, we can kind of put together what this means. He's giving three comparisons Right? He uses the bread um, as his message. Then he uses the children as the Jewish people. And he uses the dogs as the Gentiles. And so what he's saying is the message should go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So he says, let the children be fed first. But even that phrase actually holds out hope for the Gentiles that, yes, they're going to get fed first, but eventually the message of Jesus is going to go to the Gentiles and it's going to include everyone. They would also be the recipients of God's grace. They will eventually receive the blessing, but not yet. And so Jesus was telling the woman, essentially, that his first priority, and there's a couple of ways to look at this. One, you can say his first priority was to the Jews, um, the other, they both end up meaning the same thing. The second one was, hey, I'm here to meet with my disciples. And so these people get my blessing first, they get my attention first, and everybody else has to wait, right? Especially the Gentiles, they're going to have to wait their turn. It's not their time yet. I'm not interrupting my ministry to do this. <clears throat> but she replies, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs, so she implied that the Gentiles, or even her, didn't need to wait to receive the blessings of Jesus. They could eat when the Jews were eating during Jesus' ministry. 
the Gentiles getting a blessing would not deprive the Jews in any way. They could just pick up around the edges what Jesus was teaching. And so her point was that she wouldn't have to wait. He wouldn't need to interrupt his instruction for the disciples or his ministry to the Jews because all she really wanted was a crumb, the small benefit of his grace for her need. It's also interesting that at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, there's this mention of leftovers, right? That they fed all of the people, and then there's all these baskets of leftovers, essentially for someone else. And I think Mark is sort of tying these things together, that the Gentile woman is saying, look, there's leftovers. You've blessed the Jews, you've met these things, but there's leftovers for everyone. Anyone can come to the table and receive the blessing of Jesus. There's more than enough for everyone. So she tells him that, and then he tells her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So this is the first and the only time in Mark that Jesus heals someone with no command, and he's not there. So he doesn't say, demon, come out. There's no command to do that. He just says, go, she's okay. That's it. So that's just interesting. So she receives a positive response to her question. Right? The response to the Pharisees and scribes' questions was, you're hypocrites. The response to the disciples was, why don't you guys understand this yet? Right? You still don't get it? The response to this woman, this unclean Gentile, was, here's your blessing, your daughter is healed. So this woman is placed in the company of the disciples, and she, of all the people that we saw, is the one deemed acceptable to God to receive his blessing, to receive healing, even though, from their view, she is ritually unclean. She should not be a part of the community. She should not be approaching Jesus. So the woman, I think, actually shows great faith because she doesn't say anything after that. He just says, go home. She's healed. The woman doesn't say, well, how do I know that? Can you give me proof? Can you come with me just to make sure? She just goes home, and it's how she said it is. And I think she demonstrates great faith in this moment. She just goes, and she has faith that leads to obedience. Faith that Jesus can help her and has helped her just with those few words. In placing herself at the feet of Jesus, she was made clean and acceptable. It didn't take rituals. It didn't take traditions of men. It didn't take any of these other things. It just took throwing herself at the feet of Jesus and asking for his mercy. Right, which is how we become acceptable to God. We place ourselves at the feet of Jesus in surrender. Right, with a little bit of reverence, of understanding who he is and what he's done, and sometimes with a little bit of desperation. There's nothing else that's working. There's no one else who can help me. There's nobody else who can give me what you can give me. And so just help me. Right? Because there's nothing we can do on our own to be acceptable to God. There's no amount of good deeds. We can't outweigh our bad deeds with our good. Even church-related actions don't actually get us there. But on the flip side, that also means no matter what you've done, That doesn't prevent you from receiving Jesus' blessing. So if there's nothing you can do to actually get it, there's actually nothing you can do to lose it or to be prevented from getting it. 
It's as we realize we are unworthy, we are broken, we are in need of saving, that we can surrender ourselves to Jesus, to trust in his sacrifice on our behalf that makes us righteous, that makes us clean, that makes us acceptable to God. But here's the challenge, especially for a lot of us in this room who have been believers for a long time. The things we would probably do to earn God's favor, like attending church and reading our Bibles and praying and living according to the Scriptures, are actually the same things you would do after you're accepted by God, but for a different reason. Right? Not to prove your worth or to prove how good you are or to say, look at how great I am. Look at my list of accomplishments. Let me in. Show me mercy. Show me grace. But you do them because you are already accepted. And you lovingly obey to show your thankfulness and devotion for what Christ has done for you and how he has saved you from sin and death. That's why I think the Christian life is so tricky. Because both of if you had two people doing those things, they both look from the outside exactly the same. But one is trying to say, look at me, God, I'm good enough. Please let me in. And the other one realizes, there's nothing I could ever do that would ever make me good enough. Please have mercy on me. And when they receive mercy and they receive grace and they receive salvation because of Christ's sacrifice, then they do all of those things to say, God, thank you. I want to serve you. I want to be obedient. I want to follow your commands. I want more of you. I think that's why it's so challenging. Because a list would be way simpler than that, right? Hey, we just have this list and everybody who does all these things is good. But it doesn't quite work that way. It's more about the heart right? What is inside of us. Which is why we don't need more rules. We don't need more regulations. We don't need more laws to determine who is clean and unclean, who is acceptable by God, but we need new hearts. We need to become new creations to surrender to Jesus, to sit at his feet and say, God, have mercy on me because of what I've done, and it's not good enough, and I know it's not good enough, but will you rescue me? Will you save me? Will you redeem me? Will you make me whole? And just like we saw here, the person you least expect to get that blessing is the one who gets it. And I think that's true in real life. It's only the broken who realize they need help who Jesus saves. So I pray that God would give us new hearts and renew us from within. You guys pray with me really quick. Um, God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for just a, a word like this that, that helps us to kind of uh, fight through the, the battle that sometimes I think we all face of, hey, I just, if I do the right things, God will love me or he'll love me more if I'm doing those. But that you love us unconditionally, that it's not our, our checklists or our rules or our regulations or, or things that we think we need to do all the time that make us holy, but it's you. It's your sacrifice and trusting in you and believing in you and following you that makes us holy, that gives us new hearts. You're the only one who can take us from death to life. And so we thank you for that. 
We pray that you would help us to seek you to fall at your feet, even daily in surrender and say, God, just help me. Jesus, help me. Give me the strength to obey you, to follow you, to do the things that you want me to do. Not because it gives us any better standing before God, because it brings us closer to him. So help us to seek you above all other things that we would um, do serve God out of love, out of obedience, out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, out of worship, and not out of obligation. It's in your name I pray. Amen.